One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, before we get to the latest episode of Think Inclusive, I want to tell you all about another show I think you'll enjoy. My name is Rashira Dobson, and I am the host of the Womanhood and Disability Podcast. It's a podcast about the intersection of what it's like to be a woman and to live with a disability. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's get ready for the podcast for inclusionists. Think Inclusive, brought to you by MCIE. From MCIE. What does independence look like for a young autistic adult? And when we mean independence, do we really mean interdependence? Our guest today, Haley Moss, author of the Young Autistic Adults Independence Handbook, thinks that maybe... We need to deconstruct the idea that independence means doing everything by yourself. My name is Tim Viegas, and you are listening to the Think Inclusive podcast presented by MCIE. This podcast exists to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. To find out more about who we are and what we do, check us out at thinkinclusive.us or on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Today on the podcast, I interview Haley Moss, an autistic attorney, author, artist, and advocate. Haley shares with us the main message she wants to get across to autistic individuals who are seeking independence, alternatives to guardianship, and strategies for educators to foster self-advocacy in their students. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for listening, subscribing, and rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And now, our interview with Haley Moss. So today on the Think Inclusive podcast, we have Haley Moss, who is a lawyer, neurodiversity expert, and the author of four books that guide neurodivergent individuals through professional and personal challenges. While known as Florida's first openly autistic attorney, today she is a consultant to top corporations and nonprofits that seek her guidance in creating a diverse workplace and a sought-after 
commentator on disability rights issues. Her books include Great Minds Think Differently, Neurodiversity for Lawyers and Other Professionals, and The Young Autistic Adults Independence Handbook. Her articles have appeared in outlets including The Washington Post, Teen Vogue, and Fast Company, and Think Inclusive, Haley. You did write a blog for I us did. A, couple, a couple of years ago, or was it 2020? Was it 2020? I think it was 2020. I remember writing about how social distancing and being home like kind of made me feel hopeful. Well, Haley, it's a pleasure to finally have you on and uh, for us to talk about your book. But just in case people don't know who you are, would you introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. Hi, everybody. And thank you again for having me here on the Think Inclusive podcast. My name is Haley Moss. My pronouns are she, her, and I am from sunny Miami, Florida. I am a lawyer by trade and an educator by choice is how I like to see myself. I am currently not in law practice because I think it's much more fun getting to talk about neurodiversity, talk about disability inclusion and help guide people on that journey because a lot of us really want to do the right thing, if to be quite honest with you. And some of us don't know what that thing is, or we're afraid that we're going to offend people that we genuinely love and care about, and we want to do better. And I also realize a lot of people don't have access to neurodivergent adults. And also when it comes to working with businesses, they also want that legal expertise in that public policy perspective. So I bring to them both the personal and the professional. So that is kind of my background right now. But as a human being, I am in my now late 20s. I am a millennial who, like many of us, I like to joke, I live on my phone. So I'm usually pretty easy to get in touch with. I also am kind of a huge nerd. I love playing video games. I love reading. I love drawing and painting. I always like to remind people of these things outside of what I do for work, because so often we forget that people with disabilities and neurodivergent people that we are human beings outside of the work and advocacy that we do. Thanks for mentioning that Haley. And, uh, and before we even started recording, we had a, a nice talk about Pokemon go. So <laughs> we, keep, we keep it interesting around here. That's right. That's right. Um, so you have, uh, you have a number of books. Um, I think, don't you have, you have other books than just great minds think differently and the, uh, autistic adults, uh, the young autistic adult independence handbook. Is that right? Yeah. So I actually started writing when I was a teenager, which is really scary to think about. So my very first book I actually wrote when I was leaving middle school and entering high school, and that is middle school, the stuff nobody tells you about. And when I was a freshman in college, I wrote a freshman survival guide for college students with autism spectrum disorder. And to me, the really cool thing about writing is not only do you think that you or hope that you have the ability to help other folks because of the experiences that you've had and things that you've picked up along the way. But personally, for me, what's interesting about my older work is I realize how much I've grown in my journey with identity, how we talk about autism, how much has changed since 20. 10 or 2008 when I started writing and even just my own journey with that. So I'm not saying that I denounce my old work in any way. I just realized that it doesn't always align with where I'm at now. And I think we don't realize how much we grow as individuals when we're in these spaces and how much society grows because we think that things don't grow fast enough. And even looking at where I was when I was 
14 and 15 and how I really clung to functioning labels. And of course, at this point in my life, I feel very differently about that. So that has been an interesting journey in of itself that I feel weird about having that subtitle in the middle school book about high functioning because I don't describe myself that way anymore. I did as a young person because I didn't know better because all the information I had about autism as a 13 and 14 year old came from parents and professionals. I didn't know any other autistic people. So even seeing that evolution, I think is really important when we talk about writing, when we talk about our community. And I know as educators, we're constantly learning and unlearning and reevaluating what we know based on the information that we have. So I don't want you to think that you're alone as likely neurotypical or neurodivergent or likely non-autistic allies and accomplices is that we are all in this together and we're all learning because the information that we have is changing and our understanding of who we are and who our community is, is growing. And that's a really amazing thing when we think about it. Um, I love that you point that out. Um, that you, that you bring up the, that we all evolve. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I feel very much the same way mm -hmm. about the writing I, I did 10 years ago and mm -hmm. looking back on it and going, mm, I probably could have, I would have said that differently now, <laughs> <laughs> but not yeah. enough that in the information age that I would delete that work or say, don't pick it up or mm -hmm. don't do anything with it. It just, it can probably use a good facelift. Yeah. 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 Well, we all continue to, to grow. And so um, knowing that you've written books that address like, you know, what's going on with you in, in the moment, you know, middle school, freshman, and now a young autistic adult, I see a, I see a pattern growing. Mm -hmm. um, so what is the main message that you want to get across in your most recent book? I always think about how messaging has changed over the last over a decade. So I've been writing books for 12 years. At first, my goal was you're not alone mm -hmm. because as a young person in my teens, I thought I was like the only autistic person ever because I didn't know anyone. And I often felt my experiences were solo and alone because everybody I knew was largely non-autistic or neurotypical. But now at this point, I think what I want folks to walk away with is kind of deconstructing what our idea of independence is, mm. is that we hold independence as this very lofty goal, especially when it comes to students and young people with disabilities is that you have, and we sell it as you have to be able to do everything by yourself, or you will never be independent. You have to live on your own. You have to be able to manage your money. You have to be able to have a job. You have to be able to drive. You have to be able to do this and that and try new foods and have a social life and pay your bills on time. And it's just a lot of information, no matter who you are. And truthfully, we don't even hold non-disabled neurotypical people to that same standard of you have to be able to do everything. We're all interdependent as a society. We depend on each other to do different things. So I know, think about us, a lot of us don't know how to properly do our taxes. We get an accountant. We don't know how to negotiate for a new car. We might bring a parent or a partner or someone that we trust to go with us, or we might not know how to repair something. We'll call a service person who knows what they're doing. And that doesn't mean that we failed. I think that's the thing that I want young autistic people, especially to know is you're not failing because something is difficult for you or that you need additional support. It's knowing that this thing exists, you might need support. And also here's some ideas to either navigate getting that support, or here's how you can attempt to do it yourself. And if you can't, 
that's not a bad thing. But what I really wanted to do on top of just deconstructing a bunch of different independence topics and things we can do that are very practical because these skills are often not taught to us. It's just assumed we know how to survive going to the grocery store and make a list and pick things, not the, well, what happens if you're overwhelmed by the lights in there and there's, and your favorite brand of cheese isn't there. So how do we even get past that? Or what do we do? I also wanted to leave people with something actionable, which is talking about self-advocacy and getting involved in our communities is so many of us want to get involved, especially once we find our own people. So like on Twitter or whether it's on Facebook or whether it's in an in-person support group that People want to get involved, but they don't always know how, and they don't know where to put those skills to use or whatever offline. So I wanted to be sure that we give kind of a little bit of a roadmap. So, hey, you can get involved in your local nonprofits. You can be a voice with self-advocates. You can ask questions of your elected officials. You can vote. You can do all of these really cool things to be a part of your community and make sure that as a self-advocate and a young advocate that you can do the thing. So that was something I thought was really important and something that gets very overlooked in our typical discussion of independence. So I want people to know that it's okay and you got this and you're not broken. I think, again, this kind of goes back to this idea that we look at difference or disability or neurodivergence at times, sometimes as a failed version of normal, and that couldn't be further from the truth. So um, do you have like a, in the book, did did you have a like a definition of independence or was it more just like a you're just trying to deconstruct a the um what's the word um the the view that most people have that well you have to do things by yourself a little bit of both actually so of course i'm happy to give you the merriam webster definition of independence which of course is the first thing i did trying to figure out like what the heck does independence mean anyway i'm not my own country i'm not going to like declare independence from great britain as we did back in 1776 you know what i mean so i was like very literal minded about that trying to figure out like okay what exactly is independence and it's like oh being able to do things without assistance but and then i realized very quickly but there are autistic people who will always need assistance in different aspects of their life. There are things that even though I have relatively few support needs in some aspect of my life, I will always need help from another human being with. That's not a bad thing. So I really wanted to think about this interdependence interdependence, and also here's some practical life skills and things that you need to know because someone probably didn't teach this to you and they assumed it was common sense and you're not a failure for not knowing this. That was kind of the main approach that I wanted to take. So even things like, here's what you should have in your medicine cabinet, even if you are not on prescriptions, or here's how you should refill your prescription if you were anxious to call the pharmacy. Just little life things that people should probably know that get overlooked more often than not, especially if they're moving somewhere else or leaving a caregiver's home. So I think about the first time I felt like I failed at being independent was when I was in college is immediately after moving into the dorms, like many 18-year-olds, I had to do laundry. And I take my laundry down to the dorm washer dryers in the laundry room, and the washer dryers look nothing like Mm. they did at my parents' house. My parents have them one, two. At the dorms, they were stacked on top of each other. I did not know on the stack which one was which. I was very confused. I had to guess. My guess did not go well. 
I unfortunately <laughs> put everything in the dryer first because I thought it was top down, not bottom up. And of course, all my clothes were warm with soap on them. And I was like, <laughs> and, I, and I didn't realize it's get like the roll of quarters, the whole kit and caboodle about it. Everything about it was just wrong. And I go, oh, crap. I failed at being an adult. I don't know what I'm doing. I should probably move back home and consider myself a failure. I don't know how to be a college student. I don't know how to be an adult. I did everything wrong. All the preparation I had for living on my own went out the window on my like first week because I didn't know which one was the washer and which one was the dryer. And that's not how life works. So that was kind of one of those pivotal moments for me where I realized, okay, independence does not mean that I have to know which one's the washer and which one's the dryer and get it right every single time. That figuring that out, having the resilience kind of to get back up and do it again and hang my head in shame. And and now, of course, 10 years later, I'm able to laugh about it a little bit more, but just kind of that idea about what independence is and how we hold ourselves to the standard. And we need to kind of let go of that standard. And something else that I really wanted to do is I interviewed professionals about certain life topics that I think were difficult or that I might not have had an answer to and got some input on how can we do this better and how can society be more understanding or what can we be doing differently if this is something we want to do and get out of our own comfort zones. So I spoke to folks about grief and how that might manifest different for autistic people. I spoke to a psychologist that purposely works with folks who have sensory issues surrounding food because I asked her, how am I going to try new things? Because trying new food is the biggest anxiety and one of the biggest roadblocks that I have in my adult life is I was like, how would I try a new thing and not feel a lot of pressure or not feel like a failure to do it? And she gave me all these really cool ideas of how to approach food issues. And I couldn't wait to share that. Like, hey, if you are someone like me that eats the same five things, here's how we can attempt to branch out without it being too scary. So all of these things, I think, you can take as much as you want or as little as you want. And hopefully you walk away with something to make you feel less alone. And like you didn't fail in some way because you didn't. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So I wonder like who came up with this idea in the first place about like independence being like, you're just on your own. Like, like where, where did this come from? Like, is it, is, is this like a Western uh, American value? And because I don't know. I, I I think it is. Honestly, I think it's a very individualistic capitalistic culture type thing. Yeah. With hustle culture and do it all yourself and the self-made all of that. I think we can have this whole thing devolve into independence being a side effect of hustle culture, but that's a completely different train of thought. <laughs> right. I just but- think about how we really push that as this very lofty goal for people with disabilities, because we're afraid that if we give people support, they're a burden for some reason. Exactly. I think that in di- yeah. the disability sphere, independence means that we don't want you to be a burden on us, our society, and drain our resources, which also goes back to this idea of hustle culture. Yeah, that's so true. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's a it's a way for um, the educational system to segregate students too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, if you can't do this, you can't keep up. You can't, you know, whatever without you, help. Exactly. Then you, you belong support- somewhere else. Exactly. It's like, if you need support, they're basically saying you're screwed Yeah, and you're not, you just need support. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think so- that's really important is we uplift people who do need more support and that people who do need daily support, that they're able to get that and access that. And when I think about independence, independence, one of the biggest things I learned as well is acknowledging that you can't do it all yourself and acknowledging you need support. 
I remember feeling like even growing up, if I had to go to a teacher or professor to ask questions or go to extra help, I thought that it was a reflection of me being stupid or bad, or Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. And I, of course, that all kind of speaks to this internalized ableism and this, you have to be able to do it all yourself thing. And yeah, I realized that's not true. And I realized asking for help is sometimes one of the bravest things we can do. And one of the most necessary things we could do. And if anything, all of it boils down to self-advocacy. And I think that's what educators really need to be focusing more on more so than you should be able to do this by yourself. You should be able to advocate for yourself, especially in situations when we have emerging adults and parents and caregivers might not be legally able to be those advocates and adults all Mm. the time that are doing the adulting for someone all the time. Right. And sometimes Um, you can't be somebody else's megaphone. Sometimes you can, sometimes it's just not appropriate. Uh, so I want to, I want to ask you, I want to ask you about the people you interviewed, but I want, mm-hmm. but I, before that, I want to ask you about um, if you have any thoughts about guardianship. I, it wasn't something <laughs> I prepared you for. But I, well, I always have thoughts on guardianship. Okay, Everybody, well, knows. Everybody knows I have thoughts on guardianship. So. Okay, good, good. Um, it, Cause uh, you know, we we're talking about independence and we're talking about asking for help and, and, and stuff like, so that, overlaps with that. So uh, tell us your thoughts. (laughs) Tell us your thoughts about guardianship, Haley. Ideally, guardianship should be abolished. Realistically, guardianship needs to exist as an absolute last resort, that there is a place for it. The place for it is not with young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. It's not the place for most elderly people. It is not the place for most people experiencing a mental health crisis or a psychiatric disability. It is essentially for folks who absolutely cannot make any decisions or might in, there are so many alternatives that are better. So if you can't make any of the alternatives work, that might be when guardianship is appropriate, if ever. That being said, it's not appropriate for most of us. And what people don't realize about guardianship is just how restrictive it is and how difficult it is to get out of a guardianship. So here in Florida, guardianship does take away a lot of civil rights, which might include, and actually I know in certain anecdotes from down here, does include things like the right to vote. So people do lose that under guardianship. There are all sorts of really great alternatives. And what happens with guardianship, especially when we're talking about people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, is that they're told that guardianship is the only answer. That is why a lot of us end up in unnecessary guardianships. It's not that our parents want to punish us. It's not that our teachers want to doom us to never, ever being on our own. It's not something that comes from ill intent. And I think that's something that gets lost a lot in the guardianship conversation is guardianship comes from well-meaning people who don't realize the consequences or don't realize there are other options. So as an attorney, I can actually tell you, depending on where you live and depending on what your needs are, there are many different alternatives to guardianship, depending on what that person's needs are. If you're afraid that they might not be able to manage their government benefits, you might be able to get a representative payee through social security that can help manage and make sure that those benefits are being distributed appropriately. You might want to set up a special needs trust to make sure that that person's assets are being managed and being spent for that person's well-being without them having to manage their money and also not have it possibly contribute against an asset cap when it comes to receiving benefits. So special needs trusts are one of those things that gets thrown around a lot. I know that the terminology is not great, 
but that is the legal term of art for it other than supplemental needs trust, depending on where you live. But most people are familiar with it as a special needs trust. That is my little note on language because I usually will avoid special needs like the plague. But yep. Special needs trust is the one place I cannot avoid it, whether or not I want to. And we also have things like power of attorney. And I know a lot of people think about that when they have loved ones who are in hospitals or elderly and they're making medical and financial decisions on somebody else's behalf. And of course, we have our least restrictive alternative to guardianship, which is supported decision making. And I'm a huge fan of SDM. I think anybody can benefit from it. Whether it's formal or informal, we all use some form of supported decision-making in our lives. I always look at guardianship and SDM and all this. I talk about it a lot like buying a car. And I don't know why that's always my go-to, but it seems to be the easiest thing for people to digest. So in guardianship, we're telling you this is a car. It's going to be this make, this model, this color. You're going to have, it's going to come preloaded with gas and you are going to return it by 10 PM because I said so. That is guardianship. And you want to trade in the car? You don't like the car? You want to get it repaired? You want to fill it up with gas? Sorry, you have to ask me first. So that is kind of what guardianship is like if you want a car. And supported decision-making, I will say, hi, I would love to get a car, but I don't know what's best for me, or maybe I need help at the negotiating for the car, whatever it might be that I need that support with when it comes to the car. Or maybe I don't know how to pump gas. I don't know. Let's just make something up for the purpose of this example. And with supported decision-making, the decision-maker is the person with a disability. So if I decide I don't want a car or I don't want the car that you think I should get, that's my choice. And we, of course, have that panel or people that we appoint as supporters or advisors that might give us their input. They might be like, well, Haley, why do you want this car? I would like to be able to buy groceries and take them home. I also want something safe and I would like to be able to take two people with me. I don't know. And of course, they might give me some ideas for like an SUV versus a sedan, some pros, some cons, what my asking what my budget is, all of these other things to help me decide what kind of car I want. And maybe I need someone to go with me to negotiate it. And I authorize that person to be the one who talks to the salesperson. So ultimately, I'm the one who's driving in every which way of that process, whether it's the car itself or the process to get that car. So that is kind of how I view supported decision-making versus guardianship. And I know those are two very different extremes of the same thing, but I think they're the one thing that gets lost a lot in this conversation as well is that guardianship laws or conservatorship, if you're in California, are on a state by state basis. There is no federal oversight of the process. So each state has a different way that they go through this. And a lot of guardianship proceedings are confidential because we are dealing with people who are vulnerable or we are also dealing with children. So a lot of how we get reform other than state by state in your state coalition, or if you have a supported decision-making law on the books is through education and grassroots efforts. So as educators, it's important for us to realize that guardianship is not our only option to siphon our new 18 year olds through because our, their parents or guardians would like to have some form of control over their adult lives or that they think it's necessary is that we're able to say, hey, there's all sorts of different options. You might want to talk to your financial planner or somebody else about something like a trust, or are they going to be applying for government benefits such from social security or any of that stuff as well? So kind of really looking at this from a multi-dimensional approach or even something like person-centered planning that puts that self-advocate in the middle and we come up with a solution together. I'd like to talk about some strategies for uh, self-advocacy 
because I know that the last portion of your book is dedicated to self-advocacy. So uh, if as, as educators um, mm-hmm. who are mostly listening at mostly educators that are listening to the, to this conversation, uh-huh. how can educators foster self-advocacy in their students? So you know, it doesn't matter what age, you know, it could be elementary, oh middle gosh. or high school. Like what, what are some, what are some strategies or tips that educators can use? Meet the students where they're at. So self-advocacy takes many, many different forms. And I think something that we do is we really focus on the word advocacy, which we think of as things like guardianship and policy and litigation and things that are above our pay grade or for people in power, which is complete garbage. Advocacy is for all of us. And self-advocacy really focuses more on the self than the advocacy. So when we're talking about self-advocacy is we have to do this at a way that's appropriate depending on the person's interests, level of understanding, and who they are. That could be as simple as making yes or no decisions or saying that you feel uncomfortable. So for young people, I think about what self-advocacy means with a yes or no. I think about this at home when someone asks what you want for dinner. And so often we default to I don't care when you absolutely do care. So how do we make it that you're able to express that yes, no desire that binary at an early age per se, or to request something. And something that's really important about self-advocacy is that we honor those requests. So it doesn't feel like that some other adult is constantly in control. That maybe if I say I want pizza, maybe you won't give me pizza every night, but maybe we'll have an agreement that, okay, maybe we can get pizza on Friday. Would you like pizza on Friday? Yep. Then that way it's seen, heard, and respected. Mm. I think so much of self-advocacy does come from that and not and kind of avoiding that learned helplessness. I think as students get older, a really important thing is kind of talking it over with the family too, because one of the biggest things that always feels strangely radical every so often when I bring this up to parents and caregivers is include your child in their IEP meetings or have, be an active participant in setting their educational goals. Mm. Because at the end of the day, that collection of documents and plans is about them. It is not about your goals. It is not about the educator's goals. It is about the student. And what is what do they want to get out of this? If they have a baseline level of understanding of some form, way, shape, or form, or we're able to bring down what we're saying in a way that's approachable to them, have them be an active participant in this process. But that could be one of the big goals that we have is how do we make it so it's not the parents or caregivers' voice being the top priority that we also make sure that the student's voice is heard. So I think about the first time I went to one of those meetings, I was nine years old, I was in the fourth grade. And the only thing I said the entire meeting is I want to be friends with girls. That's it. I wanted to make female friends. That was it. And that was something we expanded upon, even Mm. though that was the only request that I made or the only thing that I said, not the, of course, the usual chatter of Haley wants to be more academically challenged. She wants to make friends. And I made it clear, no, I want to make female friends because I already had friends who were, not female that I played video games with, for instance, I wanted to have female friends because that was something I thought was important. Mm. So that's kind of something I thought was a way to expand upon that and talk more about self-advocacy. And of course that expands much throughout the lifetime. And sometimes it's difficult to say what you're feeling, but I think as educators, we have ways that we can open this door for so many I think encouraging it not just through speaking out loud is really important too. So something that I do with my students, and I learned this through actually an elementary educator I teach at the college level, is I make them tell me on the first day, other than tell me like a fun fact about yourself, is what's something that you want me to know about you? 
Like, what is something you want me to know? And it, I saw this done originally with second graders and index cards. And the stuff that the kids wrote was not what this teacher expected. They'd write stuff like, I want my teacher to know I take care of my mom. I want my teacher to know my favorite color is blue. I want my teacher to know that I only have three pencils. So I'm not essentially screwing up if I forget my pencil or that my pencil isn't sharp. That people write all sorts of different things. And those things are all forms of advocacy. You might, you telling me your favorite color is blue might tell me that maybe if I incorporate more blue visuals into something, you might have an easier time paying attention or that you'll feel seen that way or heard or respected. Or you telling me that you only have a couple of pencils means that maybe there's something else going on at home I should care about, or maybe I should have extra pencils in the back of the room. Or are you telling me you take care of mom might mean maybe I should be on the lookout for how you're feeling or make sure that things are okay. So I look at it as how do we do this in a way that also builds empathy and also builds safety? Because when we're building self-advocacy skills, we're teaching and also on our job, we're fostering a sense of safety that it's okay to advocate for yourself in these situations. Mm. I love that idea uh, of asking students um, what, what they want us to know about them. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, besides the book, um, which is the Young Autistic Adults Independence Handbook. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to plug while you're here? I would love to get to hear from all of you. And I love getting to answer questions, stay in touch and learn more. So I'm always up to something, I feel like. But something great that would that would be helpful is if you feel comfortable reaching out or you have any questions or you have comments, concerns, anything. I love hearing from educators. I love working with other educators. And you can say hello to me. Or we can talk about inclusion or even speaking to students and whatnot. You could please say hello to me at HaleyMoss.com or on all major social media. I am a millennial. I am painfully online. My phone is right next to me. I am someone who loves being approachable and loves getting to continue these conversations. Uh, Haley Moss, thank you so much for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. That will do it for this episode of the Think Inclusive Podcast. Subscribe to the Think Inclusive Podcast via Apple Podcasts, the Anchor app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a question or comment? Email us your feedback at podcast at thinkinclusive.us. We love to know that you're listening. Thank you to patrons Veronica E., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., Kathleen T., and Jarrett T., for their continued support of the podcast. When you become a patron, your contribution helps us with the cost of audio production, transcription, and promotion of the Think Inclusive podcast. And you could even get a shout out like the fine people we just mentioned. Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast to become a patron today and get access to all our unedited interviews, including the conversation you heard today. Thank you for helping us equip more people to promote and sustain inclusive education. This podcast is a production of MCIE, where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities. Learn more at MCIE.org. We will be back with another Think Inclusive episode in a couple of weeks. And look out for more editions of the weekly-ish and bonus episodes in the meantime. Thanks for your time and attention and for listening. Until next time, remember, inclusion always works.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details